What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today. It's Monday, July 18th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here by myself today because we are about to air my interview with Charles Henry. Before we do that, today's episode is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. planet today we cover the latest in climate change wildlife conservation renewable energy and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way monday and friday and with that we're going to get right into the interview today on tpt we are joined by charles henry charles the president of the council on library and information resources a nonprofit organization that works with libraries cultural institutions and higher learning communities to improve research teaching and learning environments through the digitization and preservation of cultural heritage. Charles Henry, welcome to the planet today. Oh, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. We're happy to have you. So first off, I would like to hear, you know, what first got you interested in the topic of our show, which is environmentalism and climate change? I, I think that my organization has been um, in, uh, in business for almost 65 years. And one of the main um, ongoing goals and aspirations of, uh, of CLEAR is to uh, make accessible and preserve whenever we can cultural heritage. And the, uh, more recently, we've been focused on cultural heritage under threat. We've done a lot of work in the Middle East um, starting about seven years ago when ISIS was uh, um, beginning to destroy so much of, uh, of the culture there. And we were working with organizations on how we could get in and digitize uh, the extant culture in order to help preserve it in case it too was, was um, damaged or destroyed. So the impetus to work with various uh, cultures and um, people uh, and countries around the world has been uh, in our DNA for, for many decades. I think the, um, there is a growing understanding and appreciation uh, and acknowledging of the potential damage that climate change is going to bring about. Mm -hmm. And the latest statistics that I've seen uh, suggest that about 98% of cultural institutions around the world, and these, this includes museums, libraries, uh, archives, and um, 
other other organizations, cultural heritage, as well as universities and higher education in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, 98% of these institutions and organizations will be affected in some way by climate disruption. Um, and that's staggering. Uh, and it, the disruptions uh, can vary from desertification to increased wildfires, uh, rising seawater, um, flooding in general, and in the increased intensity of storms. Uh, but also in in many parts of the world, the, the rising temperatures allow for different kinds of insects um, to, to infest uh, libraries and, and, and archives. And the protection against this is, is often minimal. There's also the human cost of all this. And the estimates right now is uh, by 2050, um, there could be uh, as many as 200 million displaced people uh, in various parts of the world. Um, and, and, and some of the predictions go even much higher than that. So this displacement, this diaspora of, of humanity, uh, with it goes a lot of the cultural record, a lot of the cultural heritage. And this displacement can entail a loss of ritual, a loss of um, more transient kinds of artistic expression, human expression in the form of theater, in the form of song. Uh, and languages themselves mm-hmm. are predicted to, to become extinct or muddled um, because of this uh, massive migration. So we're looking at a potentially catastrophic uh, period over the next 30 to to 50 years um, that directly affects the cultural legacy of of our species, of this planet. So that's what got us several years ago interested uh, and in many ways dedicated to exploring this and looking at ways that we um, can respond to this potential catastrophe in meaningful ways. It's really interesting when you think about the different ways that cultures are impacted by something that's so sweeping and and does impact every aspect of life, like climate change, where, you know, I think of sea level rise and I think of how ancient cities were all developed around coasts because we didn't have airfare. You know, we had to ship everything out on boats to do trade and, you know, grow our cultures. And as society advanced, coastal cities remain the norm. So for me, I live in New York City. Manhattan is on an island. And I'm thinking about all the different museums and libraries here that, you know, if the sea levels rise as much as those worst case scenario models look at, we're going to have to figure out something to either preserve those or somehow move those massive museums and their collections. That's that's right. And again, I think this, the scale is not only staggering, but it's it's almost it's it's difficult to grasp. And the mayor's office in Manhattan uh, and other uh, administrative offices have brought in Dutch engineers over the last several years to look at ways that um, the Long Island Sound and the Hudson River and other other waterways that surround Manhattan might be um, uh, their rise might be mitigated in mm-hmm. certain ways. So it's it's real and. If the water, if the seawater rises two or three feet, almost every cultural institution in Manhattan is going to be affected. There's also some of the uh, less funded uh, rural kinds of archives and and historical societies um, 
they don't have the wherewithal to protect themselves like larger institutions, mm -hmm. the wealthier institutions, but even the wealthy ones um, are going to be subject to this kind of disruption. I was reading not long ago that the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. is now confronting uh, the, a, a, a very drastic rise in groundwater and some of their collections below ground uh, and their offices below ground are threatened now by uh, water that's rising that you can't see from the surface, but it's, it's, it's bubbling up from, from underneath. Mm -hmm. So if the Smithsonian, with all its resources um, and all its expertise uh, and, its, and its relative wealth, uh, is confronting this, um, this, this considerable damage uh, and extremely costly disruption, um, there's really no institution in the world that's going to be spared. So your team let me know that climate change poses a significant threat to cultural memory. And I was kind of hoping that you could speak more to that and how cultural memory can be impacted by climate change and really what's at stake if our cultural memory is not kept alive. I, I think it, the answer to the, the last part, what's at stake, is, is uh, part of our soul. We are a, a species of storytellers. We have been... Um, telling stories for tens and tens of thousands of years. And it is precisely those stories that can be disrupted or buried um, in the tremendous problems that, that, that climate change can, can bring. But one example, it's a current one, and you look at the civil war in Syria and the displacement of uh, Syrian citizens um, Millions have fled Syria and gone um, north for the most part, mostly into refugee camps in, in Turkey. And when a population uh, migrates like that, is, is forced to flee, is forced to migrate, they often can take whatever they can carry. So household goods, uh, a few precious items, those that have often symbolic significance Mm -hmm. uh, is what they take. And so they're leaving behind uh, the material culture that they grew up with and their families have had sometimes for generations. But more than that, the loss of community, uh, you get into these into refugee camps and um, the sense of uh, a linguistic and language continuity is, is disrupted as well. And the, as I mentioned before, the, the uh, more transient or ephemeral kinds of, of cultural expression, such as theater and ritual and all religious ritual um, and hot, holiday ceremonies and, and family gatherings and milestones within the family and within society at large are lost mm -hmm. or are extremely diff difficult to, to recapture. So that alone, then, this, this disruption of the legacy of this particular country has been enormous. Um, it has not been reported in the kind of depth it, it should. Um, and then you're also losing, a gener you're losing generations of continuity with this kind of disruption. Uh, the average stay in uh, the Syrian, a, a Syrian refugee camp is typically uh, 14 to 15 years. So if young children, aged five or so, uh, are taken out of the country and stay 
in a refugee camp for 14 or 15 years, that adolescence is lost, that childhood is lost, and it's very difficult to recapture, in fact, impossible probably to recapture the experience they would have had if they had stayed uh, within, their, within their land. And as a, you know, a coda to this, the Civil War in Syria was instigated largely through one of the worst droughts in recorded history. So it was climate related um, the drought that led then to the civil war that then led to this incredible carnage and disruption and disaster. So here is a war, a civil war that actually has um, its, its roots in a climatological problem and a climatological threat. Yeah. So this is just one of who knows, you know, what. So it's not just the drought, but what the drought then um, entails. Yeah, it's interesting. That, that reminds me of a quote that I've said on the show before, but it's um, wars of the past were fought over religion, wars of the present are fought over oil, and wars of the future will be fought over water. And then you yeah. look at you know a, a case like you just brought up with Syria, where it's not just wa- wars of the future. It's you know access to water is incredibly important for every single living organism on this planet. Yes, it's, it's um, and you can look at, uh, you know, something closer to home, the present condition of the Colorado River, there's been yeah. increased coverage of, of that now. Um, and that's this once great river um, that has, uh, you know, a, a tr- tremendous swath of uh, um, agriculture dependent on it is, is drying up at, at a astonishing rate. Mm-hmm. And that will inevitably lead to other kinds of disruptions, perhaps not uh, war or fighting, but it's going to lead to a, um, uh, a, a discontinuity uh, on a grand scale. So we, it, it's at home, it's in, in just about everywhere you look at the, at the climate maps, um, something uh, much, you know, these, these much more concentrated uh, and intense kinds of climatological change will strike just about everywhere. Um, so I think, you know, the question, so what does that mean for us? And it, if we often think in terms of loss of land and, and uh, um, loss of uh, family, um, mm-hmm. loss of, you know, uh, maybe a da- national identity. Um, but also at the heart of this is the loss of our cultural expression. And that to me is, um, is equally uh, disturbing. So I want to segue into something a little bit more hopeful. What role can libraries, archives, museums, and other cultural institutions play in keeping that cultural memory alive? There's a couple of ways. One is through a large-scale digitization, say, and that would be uh, many, many institutions working in concert uh, to get the cultural record uh, that's extant now uh, into digital form so that it can be preserved and made accessible if, in fact, um, the climatological change damages it or, or destroys it. That's not particularly hopeful, but it is a means of mitigation, I think. Mm-hmm. And my organization is beginning to work with probably about 12 to 18 institutions in Africa uh, across the continent. A very uh, a very small percentage of African resources are 
in available digital form, about 4%. And there's uh, tremendous resources uh, across the continent that should be digitized and, and made available. Uh, it is a continent that is especially subject to climate change through desertification and mm -hmm. through wildfires and such. So we're working with several institutions there to, to begin to secure their resources through digitization and then preservation and, and sustainability that um, online resources can can affect. Another uh, way I think that cultural institutions can begin to address and respond to climate change is to work in concert, is to form coalitions, is to create mm -hmm. communities of practice and communities, what I call communities of practice and communities of purpose. And the reason for this to band together much more programmatically is that one of the uh, almost intractable problems confronting climate change is the inability so far for us, for humans, to develop uh, agency to work at scale. And mm -hmm. the way that uh, climate change can be, uh, can, can be addressed, at least one way, is for people to collaborate, to get together, and create the kind of agency that can begin concertedly to address this. We have not done that very well, if, if at all. And the mechanisms for creating at-scale agency, primarily governments, um, are not doing a very good job at this. And there's a lot of finger pointing and a lot of blaming, and there's also false narratives and disinformation mm -hmm. that, that um, further complicate this. So what we can do, I think, at least in our, in, in our way, is to work together with cultural institutions to see if we can collaborate to the extent where the cultural record is dutifully preserved, but also to instigate or at least instill or inculcate a sense of the true urgency and that people working together can in fact only, in fact, begin to address this. I think from my perspective, uh, it's this is the most, perhaps the most fragile time in our history. I would agree. We are just, you know, in certain ways, we're not organized to mm -hmm. address this. And uh, so, in, in, again, in a, in a kind of uh, smaller way, I think cultural institutions have a responsibility and an obligation not only to work together, but to begin to see what we can do to instill this kind of larger scale agency. Gotcha. So something that you had just brought up that I want to come back to a little bit, um, you brought up how false information can sort of complicate things. And for the good that it does, I also think social media can be a very harmful place when looking for reliable information, especially for something like climate change, which is a very complex issue that not a lot of people know the ins and outs of. I hope that most people would agree that libraries are a great resource for learning new things, learning more about those complex topics in a way that's truthful. So how can your organization or you know the institution of the library in general combat fake news, disinformation, conspiracy theories, whatever we want to call them, and all that other stuff that we tend to run into on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook? 
Yeah, that is a, that's a great question. And, and it is so pervasive and yeah. just difficult. It's damn difficult. Um, <laughs> and I think libraries have done a reasonably good job. In fact, many times an excellent job in working to get the truth out. Mm -hmm. uh, the information that comes from the library, a library is uh, almost invariably honest and candid, accurate and vetted. And mm -hmm. I think that's a, that's a model that, that needs to be not only continued, but again, to, you know, working in cons concert with hundreds of institutions, those principles can have a greater effect on the world than just you know, inst a single in individual institutions um, that are promulgating um, this accurate information. It's, it's a tremendous, the barriers to, to truth and to, to accuracy um, are one thing. And mm -hmm. I, you look at, uh, there's a lot of research that's done on uh, Facebook and, and, and Google as well, Instagram and other forms of, of social networking, where the way that these platforms are organized is conducive to um, tribalism, to uh, fracturing, and mm -hmm. uh, it's it's kind of it's kind of built in. Uh, I don't want to pick too much on Facebook, but the the it's uh, an easy one to pick on. <laughs> it is. It is. It's it's, it's you know, why so we'll go for that <laughs> to start with. And the idea that when Facebook introduced the like button, that began, I think, a, a, a very large scale fragmentation into mm -hmm. groups. And people wanted to, to hear what they wanted to hear. Facebook news, similarly, you know, little snippets of this and that. And what a lot of these platforms do uh, is to remove context. And mm -hmm. that's, that's a, a, a deadly problem. Libraries and um, cultural institutions can provide the context that allows for more accurate information to be exchanged. But you know, let's let's not let our great universities and and other uh, educational institutions off the hook here either. Yeah. Facebook and and these um, other kinds of uh, fragmenting uh, approaches uh, are are recognized is is one thing, but. When you look at the way that universities look, how they brag, and you look at, um, we'll go after U.S. News and and World Report, the, the 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 rankings. There's all kinds of rankings out there, and universities uh, will tend to dismiss them as useless, and then yeah. behind the scenes work feverishly to to raise their ranking, and they do that. Um, and libraries. Large research libraries are often in a uh, somewhat similar situation where they're competing for for ranks. They, if they're number uh, number ten in a particular uh, poll, uh, they will want to be number five at some point. So there's this intense competition. It's a competition of resources, a competition of money, of staff, of ideas, and what that does is to reinforce the institution as an individual idiosyncratic standalone place. And this is precisely not what we need to address climate change. So I think that there's a lot, there, there's many layers to these traditional methods of generating prestige and, mm -hmm. and acclaim that really undermine uh, the, the, the programmatic and concerted 
uh, approach that something as huge and 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 uh, disruptive as as uh, as climate change requires. So we're not we're not well organized for this. Mm-hmm. So there is a, a, a fairly dysfunctional aspect to to governments working together. We not seem to be geared up very well for that. But it goes up and down uh, and across cultures of the ways that we uh, are most proud of our achievements um, could in fact doom us. And, and I think this is again something that these, these phenomena need much more study, they need to be recognized, but they need to be recognized much more quickly because we are running out of time. So. Do you see the library providing an avenue for people to get involved more at the ground level of, you know, we talk about climate change here, but it could be really any cause you care about. Do you see it as more of an entryway or if you already care about something and know enough about it, the library is a great place to then really ramp up your skills and learn more in depth topics? Yeah, I think both, both of those perspectives that you that you note are important one is the at uh, the individual level a reasonably safe place to go for um, accurate information to learn mm-hmm. more about you know what's going on and what one uh, person can do but I also think that it's equally important for libraries as a kind of institution um, to uh, in certain ways mobilize and uh, cohere uh, in in um, ways that we we haven't quite yet um, to make a, a broader impact uh, on on these um, on these disruptions, mm-hmm. it, it's a lot to ask. Um, basically, saying um, put aside let's you know it, for twenty years or twenty five years put aside so many of the benchmarks, the measurements, uh, the gold standards that we've lived with for for mm-hmm. hundreds of years and work together. Um, I yeah. think we can do it, but it's, uh, we'll see. You know, it's going to take a lot of effort. Yeah, it's a global problem that's going to require global solutions. And unfortunately, like you said, competition can sometimes get in the way of that. But I hope that in this case, it is something where we can really band together, realize just how important this issue is to our world's wildlife, our biodiversity, our cultural memory, our people in general, and, you know, just society as a whole and, and really do this thing, for lack of a better term. Yeah, and I think that um, at issue here is leadership, a particular kind of leadership. Mm-hmm. And um, where this kind of leadership gets trained is, is also a question. It's very difficult. I'm smiling and I'm thinking of all the, uh, the, the presidents and provosts and, and uh, senior administrators I've worked with. I don't mm-hmm. think any of them got their job by going in and say, well, I would like to run this university uh, with a, you know, we're going to become interdependent with 15 other schools and we will uh, work together and see what we can do uh, as a new kind of consortium. And our university here will uh, become somewhat sublimated in, into this uh, this new pattern of, of behavior. You just, you don't get the job if you say mm-hmm. that. And uh, so we'll see. Um, maybe there'll be some uh, larger, you know, larger enlightenment um, coming that would help with this. Sounds great to me. <laughs> All right. We end 
all of our interviews with three fun rapid fire questions. Um, I'm going to add in one at the end that is brand new to this interview. But okay. number one, <laughs> what is your favorite animal? Well, it, locally, I have to say cats. And that's my wife loves cats and we have cats and she's listening in the other room. So <laughs> awesome. What is something that you do to be more sustainable in your own life? Oh, um, <laughs> I, well, I recycle, um, nice. and, and, uh, and I run an organization that's, is somewhat hell bent on, on, uh, a more sustainable planet and more sustainable, uh, resources. Um, I also am a, uh, a weightlifter. Uh, I've been lifting weights since I was 15 and that's for my sustainability. So. Nice. <laughs> Is that it's something we don't really touch on on the show often, but yeah, it's definitely important to, you know, keep your body, keep your mind healthy. So keep, keep, yeah, <laughs> keep plugging away. <laughs> All right. Uh, last one that our listeners will be familiar with, but what is one topic that my listeners should be more aware of after hearing from you today? I think that we need to really understand more deeply, intrinsically, intuitively, that we're losing this planet. Mm-hmm. We're losing our habitat. And it is dire, it sounds dire, and it's not pleasant to talk about, um, but it's true. And the more that we can begin to acknowledge that things are slipping away mm-hmm. and that we may in fact lose our habitat is, I, I think, a cause for increased rigor and focus. Yeah, it's tough because we have to kind of tiptoe the line between this is really serious and we need to do something about it ASAP without sounding overly alarmist and making people think, well, it's too late. And That's right. I mean, the reason a lot of us are being alarmist is because it's really alarming. So it is alarming. it's a really tough issue. It, it is. And uh, there is going back to the topic of disinformation. A lot of that disinformation plays on the uh, presumption that it is too late or that we can't do mm-hmm. anything individually and, and, um, don't worry about it, uh, or you know, it'll take care of itself, or it's going to happen. It's inevitable, and uh, we have no agency to address this. Yeah. Last rapid-fire question, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this, but what is one book, any genre, that you've read in 2022 that you would recommend? Oh, uh, the, uh, one book I just, I, a lot of books. covid it was like, uh, in my in case, because we're a virtual institution, and, and but like everybody else, you know, we were kind of homebound for mm-hmm. two years, and it was like going back to graduate school, reading book after book, um, with all that uh, that time freed from meetings and and travel. Yeah. Uh, one book I read recently, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, um, is Eating to Extinction. And um, the, I don't have it in front of me. If the authors uh, can look it up, but eating to extinction looks at various foods uh, and food groups, and fish and cheese and chocolate, some of them, um, and meat and grain, around the world. And it's a very eloquent treatise on the problem of standardization, homogenization of of our food, um, and the cost of that. And it's it's uh, revelatory, and he uh, the author uses he he picks on certain uh, foods that are quite special and that we have almost lost the the, the rate of extinction for 
um, our myriad species of foods is, is again startling and partly in large part driven by climate change, but also by policy. Uh, mm -hmm. One quick example, um, there are 1,200 cultivars, species of bananas in the world, 1,200. And we consume as a, as a population one. And the, I think it's the Cavendish banana. And that's, you know, out of 1,200, we've narrowed mm -hmm. it down um, so drastically to, to a minimum of, of one species. And now that species is subject to a particular fungus that could wipe it out. So it's this, um, in our zeal to create supply chains, to create predictability, to create sustainability, um, we have uh, reduced our options um, exponentially. And we may end up paying dearly for that as well. So just, a, you know, th that's another piece of of uh, understanding and insight that we, I think, need to promulgate more widely. Yeah, um, and I just looked it up for the listeners. That is Eating to Extinction by Dan Saladino. Yeah. Yeah, highly recommended. Awesome. All right, Charles, if people want to keep up with you, Clear, or some of the organizations that you work with, where is the best place to do that? Uh, you can follow us on our webpage, um, clir.org, uh, essentially. Um, uh, just Google it. Google us. Uh, we keep the web page up to date. It lists our affiliates, our members, our sponsors, and projects that we're working on. And uh, it will give you a, 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 an accurate uh, thumbnail of, of what's going on. And we always, uh, even there's, a, there's a contact page. And any of um, the listeners today who would like more information about CLEAR or to work with us, uh, we welcome that engagement. Great. We will link that in the show notes. So swipe up, swipe down, whatever direction and click on it. Go check out their website. That'll work. Charles, thank you so much for your time today. This was awesome. Learned a lot and really had a good time talking to you. Uh, it's a pleasure and, and mutual. Thanks again for the opportunity. Thank you. All right. Talk soon. And that'll do it for today's episode of TPT. Thank you again to Charles for his time, and please make sure to check out the links in your show notes. We will be back on Friday for some quick-hitting stories that you know and love from us. Until then, make sure to follow along on our socials at Planet Today Pod for clips from the show and an exclusive quick hit that I'm working on every week. For the Planet Today, I'm Matt Norden. See you on Friday.